0: Welcome back to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientists. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. Okay, so Professor Mark Cunningham, the Ellen Mason Bates Professor of Neurophysiology of Epilepsy at Trinity College Dublin is my guest on the podcast today. So Mark's research focuses on understanding the basis of neurological and psychiatric disease at the neuronal level of the brain using live brain tissue. So his epilepsy research has been widely supported by many funding bodies, such as the MRC, Wellcome Trust and Royal Society, to name but a few. And he has had collaborative funding agreements with a number of global pharmaceutical companies. And so, yeah, with that in mind, Mark, thank you so much again for agreeing to come on the podcast. I'm excited to chat to you today.
1: Thanks, Megan, and uh, good morning. Uh, it's lovely to be speaking with you today as well. Uh, thanks for the for the invitation. I've listened to a, a number of your podcasts with with much interest, so it's uh, I'm very honoured to be a guest on on the podcast. Oh, well, that's
0: great! It's it's nice to hear of listeners as well as as guests. But um, I suppose, Mark, you know, one of my first questions for you is, you know growing up and you said you're, you're in Yuri now did, did you grow up in Yuri is that where you're from and was was science kind of always there or did that come a little later on
1: yeah so yeah I I grew up in Newry uh, I was born in Newry and um and educated in Newry and so I um attended uh, grammar school in Yuri and and I think in terms of science um probably the first sort of moment where that really was at the forefront of my sort of consciousness was I suppose you know in, in grammar school and 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 to be honest I think there was always a conflict within myself about arts and science so I you know I, I think I very much enjoyed um English language English literature and um, you know I still like to to read um as a sort of form of pleasure and relaxation but I suppose I kind of came to a moment in in my grammar school education were and that's probably a product of the A-level system where you, you know you kind of have to really specialize and I sort of had to make that decision about whether I wanted to go down the science road or whether I wanted to go down these roads so I so I chose science but but I think it that decision was probably influenced by a couple of other factors um I had some fantastic science teachers um in in the school that i attended um, and in particular a couple of my biology teachers were very influential in terms of the school um putting in projects to the young scientist um event down in dublin and 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 i and i did that one year and and i suppose that really sort of just um further Forged that um, that sort of yearning to to do science, um, so so yeah, so you know, I, I think it was certainly the influence of, of of teachers and and probably the fact that I sort of really enjoyed that sort of process of you know gaining knowledge and and trying to understand how things worked. I, I think my parents probably would say that we're always in the background. My my mum sort of tells a story about as her as a child, I used to really like taking things apart, <laughs> much, much to her annoyance. So like things like watches and stuff like that there. So she'd like find watches, you know, completely disassembled and, and, you know, and I was like, but I just wanted to see what was inside there. I just wanted to understand what was going on in there. Um, and, and so I think that that process of, of kind of um, really sort of dissembling stuff, trying to figure out the nuts and bolts of it was probably always there in the background,
0: and because it's just interesting with with the A levels, I suppose I'm thinking of in comparison to the Leaving Cert that we have in the Republic of Ireland. You know, that you only choose about three subjects. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so, uh, generally speaking, three. um, some people will do four. So yeah. So you know, for example, in my case, um, I think I did biology, chemistry, and physics. Um, yeah. So you know, it's it, it's very very different, um, and and it and it does. I think there's pros and cons to both systems. I mean, i think I think it's quite nice to still be able to have that breadth, at, certainly at that age, you know when you're sort of sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. I think um it's very, you know it's very difficult at that sort of stage to say, I just want to completely cut off that that knowledge base. Um, but you know at the GCSE level, you're still very broad, you know and there you can take up to sort of eight, nine, ten subjects Um but yes, it very much defines um, where you want to go.
0: Okay. And it's funny because, you know, you're talking about taking things apart. Did you ever consider engineering? Because that's kind of quite like a building or you know, taking things apart, building things back up again, science.
1: A little bit. I mean, again, I was a great fan of Lego and Meccano as a child and, and absolutely, you know, could spend hours and hours just building stuff. Um, I think probably my physics wasn't strong enough or my maths. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that discouraged me uh, to go down the engineering road.
0: So you arrived into Queen's in Belfast. Um, and what was that like? And, you know, at the end of it, what made you then want to stick with it and, and go and do a PhD? Uh,
1: so, yeah, so Queen's Queens was great. And um I mean, I I really enjoyed uh, getting away to university, and you know, even though Belfast's only down the road, um, <laughs> it seemed like a million miles away, um, and it was a great experience, and I really enjoyed it. And um, so, my primary degree was in anatomy and physiology, and I suppose um, I I was very much attracted to the physiology side of that because I, I think physiology, I mean, anatomy is great, and you have to understand. You know how things are constructed and the form, but I think that ability to understand the function, the functionality of something, and um, you know, and and that idea that you know you can take a sort of cellular approach, um, a network approach, a systems approach to physiology, and um, really caught my attention. Again, I think in my um, time in in uh, Queens, again, was very much marked by a couple of experiences that really set me on that path uh, about what I want to do next. And when I was in uh, Queens uh, between my second year and my final year, because again, in the UK, a lot of degrees back then were only maybe three, three years, three year uh, honors, uh, bachelor's degrees. There were these um, programs that were called summer uh, studentships or vacation studentships. And these were opportunities for um, a student, an undergraduate student to spend a summer, I think then it was maybe up to eight weeks in a research laboratory. Um, so, I mean, those schemes still exist and they're great schemes. And in my own lab to this day, I try and sort of attract students to come and do these vacation studentships. They're usually, um, they're usually funded. So they usually come with a stipend so the Wellcome Trust have a program, and um, Nuffield Foundation, um, and there's a, there's a couple of other organisations that support it as well. And you, you get you know it's a it's a decent little stipend for the eight weeks that you're in the lab. And I remember I didn't have anywhere to live in Belfast for those eight weeks during the summer, so I used to get the train down from Newry every day, and then I would. Sometimes try and sleep over on a friend's floor or something like that. There, and um, and and I was working. I was working at the weekends in Newry, um at a petrol station. Um, so I was just you know a pump attendant, and it was great. I just remember it was a great summer. It was there was great weather, and just that experience. You know of being able to go into the lab and do science, and and I think also that very much defined where. I wanted to go in terms of my research interest because I was doing electrophysiology, which has kind of become a core part of, of, of what, what, I, what I did um, or what, what I've subsequently done. So at that time, I met um, a, a PhD, uh, sorry, uh, there was a final year student in physiology in Queens, and she was about to go to Bristol to do her PhD um, uh, in the physiology department in Bristol. In fact, she went into the cardiovascular field and uh, she was kind of saying great things about Bristol and it was a great place to do a PhD. Um, and so, you know, after I finished my, or coming towards the end of my degree, I was applying for PhD places and had had a few knockbacks, you know, I'd applied to various places in the UK and I hadn't had much uh, joy. And then I got I got a an offer to go over for an interview to Bristol, and I remember that experience quite really. So I remember flying over to Bristol, and uh, Bristol Airport's built on the top of a hill, so it's uh, it's it's quite an interesting airport to fly into, <laughs> and there's these really sort of um, dramatic uh, sort of uh, you know views of, of Bristol as a city. Um, and when I when I got uh, when I came out of the airport. Um, the the professor who uh, organised the the phd program he was actually waiting um to give me a lift into bristol because the airport's quite far to the city and i just remember he had a little red nissan micra um and him, him driving me into the city and it was just lovely it was a very nice um gesture uh, to to come to come out to the airport and pick me up and his name was tony ridge he was quite famous uh, because tony ridge was involved in research around the um, neuromuscular junction, and so he'd worked with um a number of people at UCL who had been really critical in terms of understanding neurotransmission at the neuromuscular junction. but yeah, so i I went into the department and and the way it worked then was that. kind of looked at a list of projects and you then got a chance to select which ones caught your eye and you then met the principal investigators so i was quite intrigued by one of the projects which was looking at synaptic transmission in the brain and 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 that was uh, supervised by a gentleman called roland jones and And so, you know, you you had an interview and afterwards, you know, you kind of said, you know, this is one I'm very interested in. And then the committee would go away and think about your application. So I was um, thankfully selected um, for that place. And, And at that time, it was a MRC funded studentship. So it came with quite a nice stipend i think um, i'm trying to remember now i think it was a princely sum of something like 8000 pounds per year which, <laughs> which was a lot of money back then um, so um yeah so it that, that was great and and that was um what i was doing there was you know there's there's billions of synapses in the brain so these are these tiny little connections between brain cells that allow the brain cells to communicate with each other. And at those synapses, there's a process of neurotransmission, which is occurring all the time. It's going on in your brain right now, it's going on in my brain. And that's whereby neurotransmitters, either glutamate, which is excitatory, or Mm -hmm. GABA, which is inhibitory, are being released. And, And that those processes then in turn dictate whether a cell will fire, or it won't, it won't fire an action potential, which is the kind of currency, the sort of currency of signal within networks of the brain. So, um, what I did during my PhD was I was using a technique which is called whole cell patch clamp. So that's where you have a tiny uh, glass pipette that you're able to you're able to use that you patch onto a brain cell in a in a slice in a slice of brain tissue, uh, and you can then record the events that are taking place due to synaptic transmission. So, you know, you're recording from one cell, which may have sort of tens of thousands of connections onto it, and you're monitoring that synaptic transmission that's coming onto that one cell. And you can then start to understand, you know, things about the mechanisms that govern the release of that neurotransmitter presynaptically, um, but also how that signal is interrogated at the postsynaptic level. And for my PhD, I was looking at how um, a number of drugs which um, are used to treat epilepsy so anti-convulsant drugs or anti-seizure medication as they're now called how they actually modify neurotransmitter release within the brain so I suppose that sort of put me on the track of being interested in electrophysiology and, and I can talk a bit more about electrophysiology and, and why I, I like it but it also kind of opened up to me this whole sort of beast of, of uh, epilepsy research as well
0: yeah, but um, no, sorry, just something that you said earlier before we kind of get into the research. It is interesting that You know, the fact that you went on a summer research project, I was actually the same. And I think I felt that until I did that, I didn't even know what a scientist was. Like, I didn't know what a scientist did every single day, because in college, I suppose you just have these three hour, you know, labs, but they're very like structured, you know, and I think for me anyways, and I'm not sure if you're the same, that experience with the the kind of summer experience really solidified the idea that I wanted to continue and do a Ph.D.
1: Yeah, I, I think those vacation studentships are brilliant, and and I think you're completely right that as an undergraduate you have a very um, a very sort of um, unrealistic view of of research and 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 what that what that means because again as you say your exposure to labs takes place in a very sort of control environment, and I think the thing that I learned from the vacation studentship was that you know, research, a lot of research is just like sort of, it's like playtime really. I mean, you know, I mean, I think it was, I think maybe Einstein has a quote about that where he says, you know, all research is just playtime or something like that. Um, and, and, uh, and of course, you know, you have to be, you have to be focused and there has to be a, a goal, but, you know, a lot of what you're doing is, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're experimenting, you're, you're trying to, you know, do something new and see if that will work, if it, works, you, you then test that in a rigorous manner using uh, hypotheses. Um, but I think, yeah, the vacation studentships are really, really important. And, um, you know, and I think also the timing of those vacation studentships is quite important. For undergraduates now, their their exposure to a proper research award really only takes place in um, the final year when they do their research project. Yeah. And I, I think for a lot of students, it's quite a big shock. And I know that one of the things I've seen in other universities, for example, I've got colleagues in Brazil. They've got this great system, which is called scientific initiation, and that—that that, that was the translation that they gave to me. The idea there is that that undergraduates, when they come into the university, they are allocated to a research laboratory, and um, and essentially, you know, it's it. It's not a sort of an onerous allocation in that they have to be in there all the time, but it at least gives them the connection to a proper research laboratory. And and they can, you know, within the constraints of their timetable, they can kind of get involved in terms of a research project as and when they can. So I suppose from day one, it gives them that very sort of early insight into what happens in a research laboratory before, you know, they ever get to the kind of cold face in their fourth year when they're doing the research project.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think as well, like it, it is. I mean, it's it's a big commitment to PhD and and sticking with academia. So it's great to kind of have a little flavour of what it actually is like before you, I suppose, commit to it. And um, but you know, after your your time in Bristol, I know you were kind of had postdocs in in different places. So maybe talk to me about those. I think with Germany, one of them.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I I finished my PhD in Bristol and. I stayed on for a year after that as a research assistant. So the work that we'd been doing um, had sort of caught the attention of of a drug company, and and I'm sure I can say their name, Pfizer. And, and and at that stage, Pfizer were they'd been developing a number of new anti convulsant drugs. So they. they um, had a number of drugs. One of them was called um, uh, gabapentin, and another one is pro- called pregabalin. And they were very interested in the model that we were using, and whether in our model we could actually see any effect of um, of these drugs. So, so I stayed on for a year. We we got a collaborative project with them, uh, and they you know they paid for my salary for a year, and and paid for consumables to do the experiments and whatnot. And 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 we, we published uh, we published a paper out of that work as well, which which was good. And um, and I suppose that was also an interesting experience for me because it it also exposed me to that whole world of where you know as an academic it's a balancing act. This, but you know clearly as academics we need to do our you know our science and and that that can be you know your blue skies science mm. and it can be translational science. But I think it's always interesting to be talking to other parties and, you know, in particular... And parties in Pharma, because I think that dialogue is is quite is quite important, and and it can can be very beneficial in terms of, you know, producing outputs like a paper or or whatever, and um, that that again are a part uh, an important part of the whole scientific dialogue. So I think that sort of academic industry interaction is is kind of interesting, and and I suppose that's another thing that has kind of followed through my career as well. So. I mean, after I finished that year, I, I kind of was at another sort of crossroads. I, I kind of, I, I sort of say I've got all of these sort of crossroads where mm-hmm. you know, important decision making points. And I think what I felt at that time was that what I was doing was quite reductionist. You know, it's pretty nitty nuts and bolts level stuff. You know, you're you're looking at you know synaptic transmission at the level of of synapses, and I I kind of had a feeling that the way things in neuroscience were going was that things were sort of going more to a sort of systems level or a sort of microcircuit level. And I'd thought about, you know, I I knew that I wanted to continue in a career in, in science, but I was kind of thinking about, well, I need to really learn a new technique or, you know, get some new experience. And I was quite intrigued by sort of in vivo work. So that's, you know, where you're actually maybe recording activity from, um, from you know the whole brain, from a behaving animal or, or an anaesthetized animal. The only problem there was that during my PhD, I developed a bit of an allergy to animals. Oh, no. So the, the idea of being sort of, I mean, it wasn't a serious allergy, but it was one that I, I felt, you know, I didn't want it to get any worse than what it was. So, you know, the idea of spending a lot of time in a small room, you know, with with um, with animals, just wasn't appealing. So um, my my boss at that time, he had some friends and colleagues that were based up in Leeds at Leeds University, and they were they were looking for um, some postdocs. So I went up there and, and had an interview and got the postdoc. And then I I think I spent the next five years up in Leeds and. There, what I was exposed to and what I learned more about was how, so, you know, previously it had all been about how synapses, you know, these contacts um, between brain cells behave. With, the, with this postdoc in leads, what I started to do was I was more introduced to neuronal oscillations. So, this is this idea that you can take a network of brain cells, um, so the brain cells themselves interactions in terms of the synaptic connections between them and that these networks actually start to produce a sort of emergent property which organizes itself into into rhythms. So you and these rhythms, these brain rhythms, are essentially what underlie the the signals that one might see when you record um, an EEG, for example, from a human mm. subject or a human patient. So the idea that the brain oscillates or generates rhythms um, and that these rhythms can be disturbed in um, psychiatric disease states, like um, for example, psychosis or schizophrenia, um, or the idea that you know rhythmic activity actually goes completely out of control in a disease state like epilepsy started to become very interesting to me. And, and trying to understand you know, how those changes take place, but more importantly, if we understand how those changes take place, can we then think about clever ways of 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 you know sort of recalibrating those changes to bring everything back to as as the sort of normal level.
0: It's interesting as well what you're speaking about there. There's a lot of um, terms that you would associate with electricity or you know computers and stuff. So it, it is funny. I think the kind of um, juxtaposition of of language there that the brain is very electrical.
1: Oh. Yeah, completely. Um, I I, I was having a conversation a a while ago about um, some lectures that I'd given. Um, So I teach a fourth year module, which is, you know, it's on neurophysiology. So it's really sort of my core subject matter. And, you know, in the introductory lecture, you know, I talk about electricity and, and electricity, um, within the body and within the brain and you know we, we you can go right back to you know ancient literature that demonstrates for example that the egyptians had recognized that certain animals could generate electricity like the the torpedo i think it's the there's a a, a ray a particular type of ray and then there's a there's another kind of eel, a torpedo eel, that is able to generate electricity. And the Egyptians had worked out that that could actually be used therapeutically. So it's this idea, you know, we now understand that as kind of neurostimulation. But they they'd realized that. And, and, you know, looking at some of the, you know, pictures or descriptions from that time, they would realized that this could be used therapeutically. And, of course, she then moved forward to, you know, the literature of, uh, you know, people like uh, Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, for example. And again, that was very much, you know, Mary Shelley was very much influenced by uh, people like, um, you know, Galvani and and Volta, who at that time were trying to understand, um, you know, the design of batteries, but then more importantly, bioelectricity, the fact that you could use um, you know, electricity to stimulate tissue. Mm. Um, and I suppose Frankenstein is a kind of you know gothic uh, <laughs> a sort of horror manifestation of that. but it was it was very much influenced by the the time and the place um, that Shelley uh, that, that she was living in. and and, um, and you know, sh- uh, Shelley used to regularly attend uh, lectures at the Royal Society. Um, that would have been based on, on on this whole sort of this idea of of galvanic stimulation. And um, there's some really gruesome descriptions about how um, I think it was a, an acolyte of Galvani, um, an Italian scientist called Aldini, did a demonstration in London where they were able to get a a corpse from somebody that had been executed hung, and then they used this for a public experiment where they demonstrated that you know you could. Uh, electrically stimulate tissues and you could get limbs to move even though uh, the, sub- the subject was dead. so so bioelectricity is is really important and and I suppose w- what we try and do in the lab really is is understand at least within the brain how um, uh, organized electrical activity is generated and and then how that goes wrong in in certain disease states.
0: Well, I suppose this is probably a good point in our conversation to, you know, to bring in, like you mentioned earlier, why you love electrophysiology and then also talk to me um, about the disease epilepsy and then we might get into kind of the, uh, the specifics of your research then.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, why I like electricity is, <laughs> if I'm being really honest about, it, about electrophysiology, is that as a scientific technique, I think it's instantly gratifying (laughs) so so um the 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 thing about electrophysiology is that if i was to describe a sort of ordinary experimental day so you know come into the lab and you prepare your your tissue your brain slices so we cut slices of brain tissue they're generally about sort of 450 microns thick and and you cut them in such a way that what you're doing is you're preserving the connections between um, the brain cells, uh, but you're also keeping the tissue alive. So the tissue is 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 being kept alive, and then what you do is you you use a variety. You can use a variety of different techniques to record the electrical activity from that brain tissue. So the brain slice sits in a in a little specialized chamber that we have. It's being constantly perfused with a artificial cerebrospinal fluid. So we're we're kind of tricking this little bit of brain tissue into thinking that it's never left the whole brain Mm -hmm. um, and it's been oxygenated it's been kept at physiological temperatures and what I like about electrophysiology is that you know you stick your electrode into the tissue and we can then record on a fancy oscilloscope that we have on on the PC Uh, we can record the signals so I suppose and and again I'm I'm not trying to be um, insulting to any of my molecular biology or biochemistry (laughs) um, uh, colleagues but you know we do we do um, immuno in the lab as well, and we do Western blots. But, you know, I get very frustrated by that because it's like, my God, this takes three days to do and there's so <laughs> many steps. And, whereas with electrophysiology, it either works or it doesn't. If you cut really good – if you cut good tissue and the tissue is viable and you put your electrode in there, it works. You can see a signal. You can yeah. then go, ah, look, you know, the brain – uh, cell I'm recording from, it's firing action potentials. I mean, you can even hear it. So we put the signal through an amplifier and you can listen to brain cells. So Bad. I can listen to brain cells as they're firing. We can use really complex um, approaches where we don't just record from one brain cell. We use what are called multi-electrode arrays. Um, so these are little sort of arrays which have, you know, in some cases um, hundreds of contacts. So we can then record from hundreds of brain cells at the same time. Um, and you can listen to them. You can listen to this kind of symphony of, of, of sort of, signals that's arising from these um, neuronal microcircuits. And then, you know, one of the things we do in the lab is we use pharmacology. You know, we try and understand, okay, well, if, if receptor X is important for This activity, what happens if we block it or if we uh, turn on that receptor? You know, we also do some work where we use optogenetics. So this is this fancy technique where you can get certain cells in brain tissue to express um, a channel which you can then turn on or off with light. So, you know, you can shine blue light onto the brain tissue and that will only activate those um, cells that express that opsin. So these opsins are light sensitive receptors. Mm. So so from that point of view, it's it's a as I say, it's instant gratification and very, very easy to please. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, it's it's funny because all the techniques you talk about there, like uh, that we use in the lab, you're right. They do. They take a lot of time. So I can definitely see the benefits of, you know, getting that result straight away and being able to generate data would it be quickly though or do you have to wait like because i'm thinking about you getting the tissue like how easy is it for you to obtain this because it's it's human tissue yeah
1: yeah, so we do a lot of work with human tissue. Um, I mean, we also do a lot of work with animal tissue as well. So so most of the stuff at the minute in the lab is using animal tissue. Um, the human tissue, we've actually just had our ethics approved mm-hmm. um, to start um, collecting human tissue. So when I was previously in Newcastle, this is what we were doing, published a number of papers um, on our ability to collect um, human brain tissue from these are patients that are undergoing elective neurosurgery for the removal of a, a bit of tissue, which the medical doctors believe is causing their epilepsy. And and in this case, you know, the epilepsy has become very difficult to treat. So we sometimes refer to this as pharmacoresistant epilepsy. So uh, again, there's different definitions of of how you would say somebody is pharmacoresistant, but it's when they their seizures are not being adequately controlled, even though the patient is maybe taking, say, three or four anti-epileptic drugs. So they're still having um, yeah, debilitating seizures. And, of course, you know the risk there is that the more seizures you have, then you then sort of get to a point where it could actually be risky in terms of them having a seizure that, you know, could... Cause them to really injure themselves, or or indeed, there's a, a condition which is called SUDEP, sudden unexpected death due to epilepsy, uh, which which may occur when when a, they have a very sort of uh, profound seizure and um, that could ultimately lead to to death. So you know the the, the whole point of surgery is that it's if it, 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 the medical team have come to a decision that they need to really. Try and get this um, this bit of brain tissue that's causing the seizures out, and hopefully that will will either reduce the frequency of, of those seizures, or in some cases actually stop the seizures totally. I mean, that's that's the the ultimate uh, goal. So, I mean, getting human brain tissue is fantastic opportunity because. Of course, it just gets you so much closer to the patient. You're actually mm-hmm. dealing with real, you know, human pathological tissue. But it's also very, uh, you know, it's, it's a great honor to be able to get that tissue. Uh, Of course, the patients are consented um, and, and, you know, we go through all the proper ethical procedures um, to do that. What we do is we with working with the surgical team, you know, we get notification of of when this tissue is going to be removed. We collect the tissue in the theater. And then again, you know, we've got special sort of recipes for the artificial cerebrospinal fluid. And we keep this tissue alive we quickly get it back to the lab and then we cut it into thin sections and then again we're able to record from from human brain cells in this instance and and it you know it it never it never you know stops amazingly the fact that you know this is tissue that has been in somebody's brain mm-hmm. um, you know you know a, a couple of hours previously and yet we're we're able to record the electrical activity from those brain cells. Now, I've made it sound very easy there. It, you know, it's it's not easy. There's, there's lots of pitfalls. You know, it takes really good communication and coordination between um, the, the medical team and between ourselves in, in the lab. Um, you, you know, you have to be really careful with the tissue in terms of how it's removed, how it's treated. So, it, you know, we've had lots of um, disappointments, you know, when it doesn't work. Um, but when it does work, it's tremendously rewarding. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really great to be able to um, use tissue that, you know, is, is, is coming from patients. And, and hopefully then that means that the work we do will, will ultimately have an impact in terms of their, uh, you know, coming up with better treatments for them in the future.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a very like translational approach and bench to bedside. Um, you know, talk to me then, I suppose, about what is happening in the brain during epilepsy and how I suppose that manifests in a patient. I know, you know, seizures are a common presentation, but what else kind of goes on there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, how, how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, epilepsy, so. Uh, epilepsy is is a is the condition uh seizures are a manifestation of that and and I suppose the, you know the important thing to say here is that anybody can have a seizure so um i I can have a seizure tomorrow you can have a seizure tomorrow. Our brains are uniquely set up that um that they are in this sort of precarious balance. And if you have a significant perturbation of that balance, then a seizure is is a very common manifestation of of when that when things go out of kilter now that has i mean that's maybe an oversimplification, but um you know some people sometimes refer to the fact that there's this balance in the brain which is provided by um, you know at the start of our conversation, I talked about excitatory synapses and inhibitory synapses, so you know sometimes when I'm teaching this, and again, I do say to my students this is this is a oversimplification, but it's important to you know think about it in some ways in this respect you know it's a little bit like um Uh, a seesaw, you know, in a kid's playground. Mm. And on one one side you have excitation and on the other side you have inhibition, um, synaptic. Now, you've also got balance, which is provided by intrinsic excitability at the level of individual brain cells. But then on built on top of that you've got lots of other factors which uh which are really starting to emerge as being able to influence that sort of balance at the level of synapses and cells so you know for example i think we're starting to understand now a lot more about and um, the other cells in the brain so a lot of what i do or have done is for, has been very much focused on you know neurons. Now neurons are not the only brain cells in the brain. You know people like Marina Lynch will will mm. kill me. You know <laughs> uh, if I don't mention you know there's microglia, there's glia. You know and and you know I think it's important that you know in terms of a, a disease like epilepsy, which is you know it's a systems disease. I think at some level that you know these other cells are are going to have a very very profound influence. I mean if we take something like glia just as a as one example you know glia have a profound um, influence in terms of how potassium extracellular potassium is controlled in the environment around around brain cells around neurons so if you start messing around with glia that's going to have a massive impact on on how the neurons behave you know we we are also starting to understand that things like the blood brain barrier are very important. So, you know, the brain is not, uh, as we previously thought, immune-privileged. There's lots of really interesting work that's come from uh, the autoimmune encephalitis encephalitis field. So you have patients, for example, that present whereby they have the presence of autoantibodies that are in the brain, have got into the brain, and these autoantibodies, they target synaptic proteins, such as the NMD receptor. They, they target ion channels like the potassium channel. They target accessory proteins to the potassium channel. And in a lot of these patients, they present with epilepsy. Seizures are a common manifestation here. Um, so, I, I you know, I think I think we have to take a sort of very holistic view about what's going on in terms of things that can trigger seizures and and then cause um, epilepsy as a condition to arise. But I suppose what we do is really try and understand, you know, what's going on at the level uh, of the sort of microcircuit to to produce this kind of network activity that manifests as these this sort of pathological network activity.
0: Yeah, and the other thing I'm kind of thinking about is the fact that there there is no cure for epilepsy. So I know you spoke earlier about these anticonvulsant drugs and CBD oil, I think, is quite um, widely used as well, I suppose, to um, alleviate symptoms. But in terms of like treatments for reversing or for re- rebalancing the whole thing do you think you know things like glutamate receptor inhibitors or things like that are the answer or are they more to help the symptoms of disease
1: yeah i mean i th- i mean i think um I, I sometimes feel that epilepsy is a bit of a cinderella disease um and and why do i say that so <laughs> i i think that i think because there have been a number of pharmacological interventions which can be made, like anti-seizure medication, uh, anti-convulsant drugs. And, you know, generally they, they do work and they're quite well tolerated, okay? They, they can have some side effects. Um, so for a majority of people, you know, those drugs uh, do do work. The, there's about 30% of people with, with epilepsy who um, fall into that pharmacoresistant category, so the category that I mentioned earlier on. And for those patients, that's really where we're trying to work to come up with either better pharmacological treatments or um or or you know more ingenious ways you know either using you know um uh, gene therapy approaches for example which is something that we're interested in in the lab or you know novel neurostimulation protocols to to really try and sort of help that that 30% i, I think one of the things that we're starting to get a better handle on is um is the kind of nuances in terms of the the mechanisms by which epilepsy arises in different types of the of epilepsy. So, just to give you an example, there, if you take there's a genetic um, form of epilepsy which is called Dravis syndrome, it usually causes. Very, very difficult to treat seizures in, in children. It manifests quite early. And there's been some really important work that, you know, similar to the kind of work that I do, that has been able to work out that, you know, that uh, form of epilepsy, so genetic form of epilepsy, it's due to a specific mutation of a specific uh, ion channel, the sodium channel, and th- and those specific sodium channels are found on a specific type of cell within the brain, which is one of these inhibitory interneurons. So, you know, when you, with that type of knowledge, you then can really think about sort of doing precision type medicine mm. to really try and sort of, you know, come up with a gene therapy approach to target that. Um, and again, this is, you know, w- what I think, you know, trying to sort of disassemble it and think about the nuts and bolts is really important. And then, you know, constructing an, an approach that hopefully has true translational benefit.
0: Yeah, no, it and it, it seems, you know, because I, I've read like this is your lab, I think is the first lab in Trinity to solely focus on epilepsy. And it's quite surprising that that it is the first, but also brilliant that, you know, this this position was appointed. Um, and, you know, because I know your post is called the, the Ellen Mason Bates Um, professorship. So who was she and what did she suffer from epilepsy?
1: So that's a great question, Megan. And um, that was one of the things that uh, when I first was appointed, I tried to find out about. Um, We don't know a lot about Ellen Mason-Bates. She died a a number of years ago. So obviously she made this very, very generous um, uh, donation bequest um, to set up. There's actually two professorships. So there's my Chair, which is the Professor of Neurophysiology of Epilepsy, and there's a second chair, which is the Professor of Epileptology, which is held by um, my colleague uh, Colin Doherty, who's a neurologist based at St James's. He's he's only recently been appointed to to that chair, so I suppose we kind of provide this kind of preclinical clinical team with respect to to epilepsy research in Trinity. The little bit of detective work that I've done, um, it was interesting. I was interviewed not long after i had taken up my chair um for an article in the trinity you know the trinity um university times is you no know, the magazine it's kind of uh, i think it's the it might be the annual review um okay. i think that they they do an interview with newly appointed chairs and and the lady who interviewed me for that the journalist it turned out because I had also talked about you know this mystery about who Ellen Maston Bates was and it turned out I had done a little bit of homework and I found an obituary and I she, she had lived in Klonski and it turned out that this journalist Uh, her parents had lived on the same street. So this is classic, you know. Yeah, uh, Ireland. How small small is Ireland? (laughs) So now, uh, so this journalist very kindly went away and did a little bit more digging. And I think, you know, all they were able to say was that I think this lady, we we believe that she was English. Um, And I was also able to do a little bit more Digging and I certainly found a registration of, of, of birth of somebody with the same name in, in England. She, I think, very much kept herself to herself. The journalists' um, parents remembered that she had a beautiful rose garden. Um, and I think she was very um, active in the sort of local community um, in one of the sort of the, the technical colleges. Uh, we think that her husband predeceased her. Um, but there was no indication that that Ellen Mayston bates had epilepsy. There, there may have been a connection through her husband. It, it's hard to know. Mm. So certainly it, it's something still on my um, horizon that I'd like to find more information out about that lady. Because, you know, I think people like that, in terms of the uh, donations that they make, you know, this really demonstrates what I call the power of giving. Um it's a it's a very, you know, profound thing to do. And again, you know, I think the fact that somebody someone like that can make such a large donation is is also an impetus for us to really think about doing important research that has an impact for people that are living with epilepsy.
0: No, d- definitely. It, it's actually at times like this that I, I nearly wish that this was like a radio show. And I could say if anyone has any information, you yeah. know, call in. <laughs> But maybe, maybe someone listening does, does know. So yeah. But uh, yeah, I suppose Mark kind of, you know, one of the last few questions I tend to ask people is looking at academia as a whole and, and your career to date, you know, what do you love most about what you do? And then, I suppose, on the other side of it, what frustrates you the most about <laughs> academic life? If if that's a question that we can answer in the next day.
1: <laughs> uh, let me start with maybe. Let me start with what frustrates me, and and I think maybe, I think as you get older, you know, maybe you get less frustrated. Like you know, maybe I've just lost that kind of uh, bullish energy that I used to have. <laughs> but I, I think. I think maybe you. I think maybe you. I don't know if you ever, if if it's about accepting the frustrations, but I think you become a bit more, um, I don't know, a bit more Zen about it. I think, um, you know, I, I would, um, I'd be very willing to say, you know, that 20 years ago I was, you know, I was always in a rush everywhere. And I, and I think, I think, you know, what I've realized is that, you know, good science, you know, it takes time um, and it's important to take time. I think what, frustrates me is this sort of constant battle for funding but you kind of come to accept that and mm-hmm. um, and you know as I say you know it's a bit like buses you know you wait and wait and wait and then three turn up at the same time <laughs> um, but but you know uh, funding is it's a you know it's a frustrating thing there and and I think it's frustrating also when you look at the amount of waste that goes on and you know in terms of money that's spent in other areas now of course I'm, I'm not saying that as a scientific community, we should get basically a free check. And and clearly, you know, you have to do research that is important. But again, I don't want to get into a kind of conversation or say that, you know, all research has to have an immediate sort of impact. You know, I think I would be very much of the view that blue skies research, you know, is really important. And there are loads of examples where, you know, serendipity, Mm. you know, has uh, come up with really profound findings that have you know that you know weren't you know even thought of before that scientist walked into the laboratory you know and i I suppose you know my advice based on that you know my advice that i give to you know phd students and postdocs is always keep your eyes open you you just don't know where something is just going to come out at you and it's going to be an unexpected thing Mm -hmm. and i think you have to be prepared for that you have to be prepared for the unexpected Result and really then go. Why did that happen? You know, if I've done this experiment really, really well and I've controlled for everything, you know, why has that happened? And and serendipity, I think, is is really really important. So, so yeah. So I think the first, you know, my frustration is the constant battle for the funding and probably you know the increasing amount of administration <laughs> that goes along. But, but but again, coming on to uh, hopefully I've sort of segued then in that into <laughs> what I really like about it. And, and that is what I was sort of saying is that is that moment of discovery. I, I do think that there's nothing better. Um, and I suppose I use this sometimes with my undergraduate project students or my PhD students when they're maybe feeling a bit. Down in the dumps, or you know, they're they're not really feeling greatly motivated. I'm sort of saying to them, you know, you are the first person to have ever seen this. You know, whatever they're doing, you know, uh, you know, nobody else has made the discovery. You've discovered this, um, and I also use that as a. Sometimes when I'm talking to my PhD students when they go in for their viva, you know, I, I sort of say to them, you know, the whole point of this viva, because you know, usually people are extremely nervous. And I say to my PhD students before they go into the five, I say, you're the expert. You're the expert here, right? Yeah. You've spent the last four years working on this, right? So you're the expert. These two people that you're going into talking front, yep, yeah, they 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 come with a lot of expertise as well. But they just want to make sure that you did this right, and that you really know your stuff. And I said, but you're the expert, right? You stand over this. This is your thesis. You're the one that has made a genuinely novel contribution to the field. You're there to defend it as a piece of work, but you are the expert. This is your work. And, and I and I think that's that kind of process of of discovery, of of novelty. I mean, that's what gets me out of the bed in the morning time. I mean, I still try and do experiments a couple of days a week usually I annoy everybody because I break loads of stuff. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I like to get in there and, you know, do what, as I call, the kind of, you know, crazy experiments where I just want to see, is this going to work? And if it works, then, you know, I might think about that as a future project. Um, And I think that that ability to do something for the first time, do that kind of unique discovery stuff is really, really important. And, you know, there's lots of other perks about, science, you know, I've never considered it as a job mm-hmm. in the kind of, you know, in the you know, the same way that, you know, I th- I think it's such a diverse type of um, activity you know you're involved in you know doing experiments writing articles reviewing articles giving talks teaching you know and, and of course you know pre pre-covid it was very nice you got to go to nice places to yeah. you know the conferences and and you know that that's a, that's a nice but but also as part of that it's the, i think it's the relationships that one builds up in that you know i've got some great colleagues around the world met some really interesting people from all walks of life, you know. And I think, you know, science has got no country. It's a universal activity. Mm. Um it's slightly I mean I think, you know, just again coming back to the sort of zeitgeist at the minute, it's been amazing what's happened, for example, with the development of the vaccine for COVID, you know, in terms of being able to have a vaccine. That, you know, has been a fantastic, you know, international um, activity. It saddens me a little bit that we are starting to see a sort of nationalism around vaccine, um, uh, vaccine, you know, deployment, uh, and also an inequality in terms of how the vaccine is being distributed to certainly to um, other parts of the world that you know may not be so wealthy as as, as where we live. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's important to remember that science has no country, and and you know I think. My experiences in science have have always been positive and and, and really great in terms of the ability of people that i have been able to interact with it. You know, science is a collaborative activity. It's a team sport.
0: No, definitely. And, you know, I think like definitely that's something I'm missing is the kind of community or the um, I have spoke about this before, but going to conferences and just the kind of random conversations you might have at a poster and that you just don't get with Zoom because it's just not as interest. It's just not off the cuff, you know.
1: It's not, and then, and it, you know, I was chatting to um, my PhD students in the lab this week. There's a, a late-breaking uh, abstract deadline coming up for a conference in the UK, and I said, "Look, I said it's not going to be the same, but at least you know it'll give you an experience of putting together a poster." Mm. And yeah, I really miss that sort of as you say those you know conversations that you have at the side of a poster or over a cup of coffee with somebody and you kind of think oh that's interesting you know maybe I'll um, you know I'll, I'll try that or I'll, I'll think about that you know and again that goes back to you know what I was saying, you've always got to keep your eyes open. You've always got to keep your eyes open.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, well, Mark, my last question for you, which I've um, adopted to asking everybody now, is, you know, if you weren't in science and if you weren't a scientist, where do you think your life would have ended up or what career do you think you would have had in, in a parallel universe? <laughs> Good
1: question. Um, uh This always puts people on the spot. <laughs> that's a very good question you, you've kind of I, I did this recently at an interview where I asked a question like this and really stumped <laughs> so I, I feel like this is karma <laughs> uh, I don't know I like a good argument um, <laughs> and, and, and I think I think there's part of me that probably would have liked to have done law and I don't know, maybe become a barrister. I mean, I like, I like a a good argument and I think, I think, you know, certainly at that level in law, there's probably a lot of similarities with, with science. You know, it's about, you know, having an argument, constructing a case, you know, looking for the weaknesses. Um, It's quite logical. It's quite rational. I have a couple of friends who are barristers. They'll probably say it's not like that at all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, no, I I think maybe yeah maybe law or maybe di- uh, the diplomatic service. Um, I I I do really like interacting with people. I like I like chatting to people, even though I probably like um you know I am not afraid of sort of spending time on my own as well. Yeah. But you know I I like interactions with with other people, and I, and I think you know COVID has been quite difficult because I think. Science is kind of such a human endeavor, you know, and as you were saying, you know, it, it's 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 hard, you know, when you, you don't really see people that mm. much anymore. Um, but I like, you know, that exchange of ideas, you know, to be able to say this is my position, I feel you know X about this, so probably something that would involve you know, like law or you know, the diplomatic service, where you're interacting with people. You know, you're you're um, you're having conversations, you're having arguments about stuff. <laughs>
0: No, I can, I can see it. I, I was going to suggest maybe because you had said you really were a fan of the arts, but I think laws probably fits into that kind of humanities arts thing anyways. But um, Mark, listen, it's been so lovely to chat to you. And thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on and talk to me today.
1: Thanks, Megan. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and good luck with the rest of the podcasts. Um, as I said, they've been great and um, well done for the work that you've put into them.
0: So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Tuesday.